This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, you're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine. On today's program, we're discussing our latest interactive multimedia poetry feature on NewYorker.com. Jim Limber in Heaven is a series of poems that imagine the life and afterlife of a figure who embodies the tensions and traumas of a historically divided country. Joining me is the author of Jim Limber in Heaven, Shane McRae, whose work has received such honors as a Whiting Award, an Annisfield Wolf Book Award, a Lannan Literary Award, and he was a finalist for the National Book Award. Shane, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So uh, these poems are written from the perspective of a character named Jim Limber. I know that Jim Limber was a real person. Can you tell us a little bit about him and what drew you to his story? Yeah, I'll tell you what I know. Um, The historical record is a little scanty. Um, So one day um, when she was returning home uh, from town, she had been shopping, Verina Davis, uh, the wife of Jefferson Davis, saw a woman beating a child on the side of the road. And she ordered her driver to stop and uh, took the child from the woman and took the child home with her. He was a, he was a mixed-race child. And this was um, just about a year before the end of the Civil War. And from that point on, Jim Limber lived with the Davises. Um, there was no, at the time, um, sort of legal way for uh, the Davises to adopt Jim Limber scholars are a little divided about what his status was, but for a long time he was thought of as having been adopted by the Davis family, and it is understood um, that he was very close with them. And it wasn't long after uh, he arrived uh, at their house that the youngest Davis child uh, died, and Jim Limber um, was given that child's clothing. Wow. How old was uh, Jim Limber? Seven. Did he have a choice, we think? No. Uh, I don't think he had a choice. Uh, as I said, Verena Davis just took him, and, and that was it. And it's not even known who the woman was that she took him from. The The record, um, which is basically the recollection of uh, the Davises, is that um, at the end of the war, when uh, Union soldiers uh, came and they separated uh, Jim from the rest of the family, Jim fought them, um, like, physically. Like, he tried not to be taken sure. away. Um, but that doesn't necessarily even suggest that he really wanted to stay with the Davises so much as he just didn't want to be taken, which is... Yet a, again, yeah. Yeah. And th- there's no record of him after? Not really. Um, there are scattered references, but the Davis family did not express 
a ton of concern. Um, right. Uh, after after he was taken away, he's mentioned a few times, um, but it is fairly unclear what happened to him. But I'm interested that you write not about him, but as him. Mm. Uh, and tell us about that. What well, what? How did that come about? Well, um, so this is my second batch of Jim Limber poems. I first wrote about him in. Um, a book two books ago uh, in the language of my captor. Um, in those poems, he's alive. But in those poems, I also write from his perspective. And I think that the reason I did that and still do it is that um, I was um, taken, I mean, the word I use is kidnapped um, because that's sort of what it amounted to. That's sort of what it was. Um, but it's weird to come to terms with having been kidnapped when you grow up your whole life not thinking that, not thinking about that, I suppose. So I was kidnapped from my father when I was three by my mother's parents, um, who each of whom was, uh, to a greater or lesser degree, a white supremacist. And so um, they, one of the reasons that they took me was that they somehow wanted me to not be black, and I'm not sure how they thought they would effectuate that. But I think that the reason that I, I write... Um, from Jim Limber's perspective is, I guess there are some similarities in our stories, though his was considerably more extreme than mine. Um, It is nonetheless one of the few historical stories that I kind of identify with to some extent. That is incredibly powerful. Um, I mean, the poems have that cast about them of being felt experienced, but the anger too is, is coursing through them. Do you feel like the anger has changed in these new poems? Well, you know, I mean, he's in heaven, and so I, you know. But as you say of his heaven, heaven ain't plenty, and it ain't protection, you say. Yeah, he's Heaven not, is when they kill you in their homes. Yeah, he's not <laughs> super happy. I mean, it's it's a weird heaven, I guess. I think of it as an epic, but it's in some ways disparate. And there's like a there's like a purgatory part, that's the first part. There's a hell part, is the second part. And then this next book, the one that's coming out in June, is all heaven. And so I thought it would be like heaven-like. I thought it would be pleasant or something. But it turns out Jim is fairly, he's not super pleased. He attains a kind of peace by the end of the book, I really think. Um, And some of these poems uh, that are being published, uh, The New Yorker's publishing, um, he's in that moment of peace. But I guess it's hard for him to uh, imagine a paradise that is not somehow controlled by whiteness or an expression thereof. And I think that the way that Jim um, projects that is in his um, interactions with angels. He's not very happy about angels, and he feel he finds them very threatening. So yeah, his his heaven is not a very. He's not comfortable there. Yeah, I, I began to think it was heaven, but not paradise. If that makes sense. Sure. It's it's a kind of afterlife, but it isn't much of a life in a weird way. Yeah, I mean. I think the idea of heaven as paradise is a little, I mean, I'm not sure how much I would want that. I don't know that I'd want to be blissful all the time. I think it would be an unpleasant. And I think that Jim Limber's heaven is much more, he doesn't suffer physically. Um, but if you retain your consciousness from one life to the other, he's still got psychological things going on. And even if he's not in a situation in which you would imagine he would suffer from psychic wounds, he still recognizes certain things that existed in one way on earth as existing in similar ways in heaven. Um, at least he feels himself positioned in a similar way. Well, is it a kind of captivity for him? 
I mean, I think there's a way in which heaven is a captivity for everyone, but I don't think that it's necessarily a captivity that's a bad thing. Um, I guess what it is, what it boils down to is he has trouble figuring out how to be free. Mm. Um, and how do you how do you live as a free person? What does it mean to be a free person? Um, for Jim Limber, um, even though in, in the versions of him, I imagine in in the book, uh, uh, presumably he's lived up north for a while. Um, that's not freedom, certainly not at that time. And what do you do when you are suddenly translated from um, a slave condition, even if you aren't formally enslaved, to not having any of those obligations, not having any of those restrictions. It's, I, it seems almost unimaginable, and I think that he's sort of trying to figure that out. But he's in a different kind of enslavement, of course. He's he's isolated, he's taken, he's part of the family but not part of the family. He's legally without rights. Um, how does that impinge on his... Uh, persona. Well, I mean, I think that that's part, also part of the reason why he is the way that he is in heaven. Um, in one of the first, in the book, the first poem in the sequence, he doesn't even, he won't be convinced. He won't go through the gates. Well, so the New Yorker is publishing um, this poem called Jim Limber in Heaven is a nexus at which the many heavens of the multiverse converge. It was my one attempt to signal the, a main fact about the sequence, a main fact about the book is that each Jim Limber is a different Jim Limber because it's a heaven that is part of a multiverse, and so it's it's a multi-heaven. There's a lot of different heavens. Um, and so each each speaker, each Jim Limber is slightly different. And so in the first one, he refuses to go through the gates, but in the second one, he goes through the gates and immediately is trying to find uh, a farm to work on. He, he's trying to find a, a white man who needs his help. Um, and in some ways, I think that that kind of thinking is an expression of his childhood, of being taken um, and then living with the Davises. He's trying to find, he's trying to replicate to some extent those sorts of conditions so that he's not seeking enslavement, but he is seeking to be at the command of a white person. And I think part of what's happening in the sequence is in the heavens in which Jim Limber doesn't do that, um, he's trying to navigate sort of being his own person. Sure. I mean, I feel that in the sequence. And I, I actually, I've toggled between saying sequence and poetic series. Um, but you, you're saying sequence. Do you think of it as these are the order, this is the only order, it tells a larger tale? Well, it's weird because, as I said, I think of each speaker as a different person. But I've arranged them in the book as in a kind of narrative. You know, you can start in one place and follow a story but it's good to remember that you are not actually following the same person. You know, if you're imagining um, a multiverse, you're going to get a bunch of instances of the same person doing similar things. Sure. Um, and so you can make a narrative out of that. I'm also curious, though, about the sequence as sequence. Mm -hmm. uh, you have projects including the Limber series, the Jim Limber series, that stretch across multiple books. What does that let you do, the sequence, that you can't do, say, even in an epic poem or a single poem or a long poem? All these aspects that I think your poem suggests. Um, well, for me at least. Um, a lot of the reason that um, I write sequences or write with the same character or broadly speaking the same character is it gives me a sort of place to start from. Um, I'll get in a particular headspace 
and know it's going to be a Jim Limber poem. Or there's um, another character in the book called The Hastily Assembled Angel. And that's a different way of thinking and a different way of uh, seeing the world. Um, and in some ways, it operates in the same way as, say, writing a sonnet, which is basically almost all of Jim Limber's poems are sonnets. It operates in a similar way in that um, I have certain restrictions. Um, often um, restrictions can sort of spur creativity. And so I've got certain restrictions, and, and those are character restrictions. Um, I know who the speaker is, and so I can't, I can't say the things I would say if I were imagining a contemporary character. Um, and that helps me to think of how to say, and it helps me to think of what to say. Um, and so I think that, to me, that's the main benefit. But I also think it has a similar effect in the mind of the reader. Well, you, you jumped to my next question, which mm. is about the sonnet form. Tell me about that form. Do you think of it as restrictive? Well, um, you know, I've written so many. Uh, <laughs> all of my books have them. Uh, several of my books have a lot of them. You know, in some ways it's doing the thing that I was talking about with regard to form generally and with regard to um, having a particular character. It gives me a set of parameters in which I can operate. I understand, you know, I got 14 lines. Or For me, it's rather that I have... Um, like 70 beats in which to do a thing. Mm -hmm. um, like you'll see in some of these poems, some of them have six beats and then I'll make up for it with a line that has four beats or whatever. It, yeah. The whole thing adds up to 70. But um, another thing, a sort of main thing, is that when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was taking a Milton class and uh, the professor said sort of offhandedly that historically sonnets had been thought of as a form in which um, it's a form in which people do their sort of apprenticeship. Um, and I've, that's really stuck with me. And so uh, I still think of myself as doing my apprenticeship, and maybe I always will be. I don't know. Um, but doing sonnets helps me to remember that, that I am still trying to figure out how to write poems and I'm um, still learning. Um, and, yeah, I, just in a very basic way, I, I like the restrictions. I like uh, having to make something work in a certain amount of space. Well, if it's an apprenticeship, it's it's been a breakneck uh, one and a, and a beautiful one. Um, since 2011, I was trying to count. Do you have eight books, six books? The next book is the seventh book. Seventh book. Not counting three chapbooks. <laughs> well, tell me more about like how you see the books connecting. Well, uh, my last three um, are um, – there's an epic involved in that um, – um, I wrote this piece called Purgatory. Um, it was two sequences stuck together, and there was a prose thing, and there was also a series of sort of lineated poems. And um, the next book, uh, The Gilded Auction Block, um, has this 30-something page, 40-page long poem um, called The Hell Poem. Um, it's got different speakers, um, and it's set in hell. It's a big, long narrative, like in a, in a very sort of traditional way. Um, and then the new book uh, is all about heaven. Everything is set in heaven, or it's about heaven, except for there's one poem in it that's in limbo. Um, and so I guess I was trying to, I was trying to do two things at once. I was, um, I guess I was responding to Dante in some way or other. Um, aren't we all? Aren't we all? But I was also responding to the sort of Postmodernist um, long poem thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm 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 haunted and troubled um, by the dream songs because um, mm -hmm. the way in which some days I'm like this is not a poem. This is just a bunch of poems. Like obviously, and then there are other days I'm like, well, but it is a poem partly because he says it is, and I have to understand it in those terms, even if reading it the experience is different. And so 
the epic, which is called Many Worlds, it's, you know, there's sonnets in it, there's narrative poems in it, there's prose pieces in it, there's um, a play in it. So you're saying Many Worlds is your overarching. Yeah, it's the over. The divine comedy. Like the divine comedy, yeah. Um, And so it's got like a bunch of different forms in it. I I try to approach whatever it is I'm doing from a bunch of different directions, do it a bunch of different ways. Um, And so it's got that sort of postmodernist fracturing of the long poem, but it is also um, contained in this framework that people will recognize from Dante. And so it's a lot of times I'm trying to have my cake and eat it too, like a lot. (laughs) And that is, this is just a very large instance of that. Um, And so, yeah, I've been doing that since, I mean, I guess I started the hell poem, which is the first one I started, but it's now the middle part uh, in 2014. And so, I do like to write a lot. Um, I, I, I write many more poems than I end up publishing. Um, and I start many, many more poems sure. uh, than I end up finishing. Um, but I, I, I get great pleasure and happiness out of the act of writing. Um, and so it ends up that I I write a lot of things because I like to be happy. <laughs> and what of um, heaven? Were, were you aware that heaven would be coming or – you know, when did you see the scheme of it? I started to see the scheme of it, I guess, um, not long after I wrote Purgatory. Um, I wrote the Hell poem, and for a while I wasn't sure that I had gotten it right, and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with it. it. I wrote it relatively quickly, um, and then I tinkered around with it forever. And before I wrote the prose Purgatory thing, I wrote um, like a 60-page long poem that's kind of in a sort of purgatory place. I thought that was going to be my fifth book. It turns out it wasn't. I've destroyed basically all of that poem. Um, But I was always thinking of the extended epic. I just wasn't sure how it was going to be. And once the uh, hell poem was done and I had done the purgatory piece, um, I realized that I was two-thirds of the way through this thing. Um, And that's when I thought, well, the next book has to be heaven because I just did purgatory. Sure. I did purgatory now. I've just done hell. I have to do heaven. And I, every time I have a book, you know, I have a plan and it never works out. Um, <laughs> but this book. I think that's important for readers, but especially younger writers to know. I mean, yeah. sometimes they see the thing and it's like, oh, it all makes sense. It's like there was some bad months or some great months or yeah. there was a different idea to start. Well, every one of my books um, – I had, I, had, I had had a plan for, and it, n- the book never ended up being resembling the plan, except for the Heaven book. And I think it was because the Heaven book, the plan is very broad. Mm. It's just a bunch of poems in Heaven. So mm. sooner or later, I could figure it out. As it has turned out, um, it's um, written in such a way that, like, it's got there. There are two main sections, and they repeat in reverse order. So you got section one, section two then Limbo in the middle, then Section 2, Section 1, um, again, but with different poems. And so, like, the idea is it's supposed to reflect in structure sort of what a multiverse does, where you you get similarities, but it's not the same thing, but it will have, like, like Section 2 has an epigraph, and when you see Section 2 again in the second half of the book, it's got the same epigraph, so it looks exactly the same, but then the poems are different. Um, so I was trying to reflect a bit of that multiverse structure, and that came to me after I had a lot of the poems. And so it being all poems in heaven was general enough that I could play around inside it. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from. 
whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. So uh, this uh, book you're talking about will be out next year, and it's called Sometimes I Never Suffered. Yes, out next June. And um, the Jim Limber poems are in it, mm-hmm. but Jim Limber is not the only speaker I'm, I'm no. gathering. There's also uh, a speaker called the Hastily Assembled Angel. And uh, so what happens is um, at the beginning of the world, um, the angels um, decide that they don't want to be sent to Earth to have to hang out with humans or to watch humans. Um, Humans don't exist yet, but the angels can tell they're coming. And so sort of at the last minute, they throw together this angel and they shove this angel out of heaven. And while they are throwing together the angel, while they are shoving the angel out of heaven, um, one of them, uh, I believe it's Gabriel, goes to ask God if they can do this. And it's complicated because if you think about Like, theologically speaking, angels are not supposed to have free will. And so they're doing this thing that looks like a free decision in order to benefit themselves. But if they're angels and we take theological ideas about angels seriously, they can't be doing a free thing. God is allowing them to make this angel. God is allowing them to shove the angel out of heaven. God is allowing them to ask while they do it. And so the angel's relationship with God is a little complicated um, and by the end of the book, there's a confrontation between the angel and God. But for most of the series, the angel is first being sort of indifferent to humans and then slowly kind of becoming a little obsessed with humans. Um, and so, yeah, that speaker alternates with Jim Limber kind of in the book. And is that in some way autobiographical? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh um, when I was on my way here today, I realized with excitement that Sometimes I Never Suffered is the first book that I've written that doesn't have me in it anywhere. There's no poem in which I feature. And I was so thrilled by that. I realized that I had made everything in the book up. And that was really, I was really pumped. I mean, that doesn't mean that my perspective is not involved. And it definitely could be. Um, I mean, I, Jim Limber, I guess there are ways in which I think Jim Limber is kind of like me, and I definitely think that the angel is also kind of like me in a different way, because I'm certainly not angelic, nor have I suffered in the way that Jim Limber suffered. But I do think that there are some similarities to the way the angel views the world, because the, the angel really wants interaction and closeness with people, and the angel doesn't know how to do it and kind of can't do it. Um, and I think that that, yeah, I can see that. Thinking about influence, you mentioned Berryman with his dream songs. Uh, and that when you were talking about this uh, multiverse and that every poem has a j- different Jim Limber, it reminded me of Berryman and mm. Huffy Henry, who sometimes is Huffy, sometimes he's other things, um, but always is Henry, but he's sort of different incarnations. And I'm curious about that, A. And B, I'm also interested in how much Blake uh, came into it, especially when you were describing sort of your scheme of the angels. It felt mm-hmm. uh, feels Blakeian. Do, do you feel that, or were you thinking of, of either of these poets? Well, my answer is going to be a bummer. I know it because um, <laughs> I don't really like Blake yet. Yeah. Uh, my, my day, the day is going to come. I'm sure of it. But I haven't really read a lot of Blake. Um, yeah. I've just read sort of the popular hits. Um, he's the one romantic that I haven't quite figured out how to get into yet. Um, and I've 
gone through a real real thing with the romantics over the last year. And really? So, oh, yeah. I, I well, what's romantic about them for you? I don't know that I find them romantic, but I'm very interested in them. Yeah. You can think of them as a kind of beginning of the end um, mm. Mm. for sort of an English lyric tradition. Um, and this thinking is probably like heavily influenced by... Elliot, who was a huge deal for me when I was a youngster. Sure. Um, but there's a way the English lyric tradition kind of reaches an early apex um, in the 16th, early 17th centuries. And then um, you get the 18th century where it's essentially the tradition is kind of trying to kill itself. And so the major, major fig- figures are in many ways kind of anti-lyric. And when they do make lyrics, they're kind of not lyrical. Um, and then the 19th century, it rescues itself, but it's changed. I mean, it's a kind of like zombie lyric. Hmm. Um, so that there's a certain rhetorical similarity to um, 16th and early 17th century poetry. There's a certain like high lyricism, hmm. but it is not um, disciplined in quite the same way. It's not organized in with quite the same sort of real strictness of idea. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of freedom, which I enjoy yeah. a, a great deal. But that is eventually the freedom that leads to a sort of attempt at a retrenchment in the Victorians that falls apart and ends yeah. up with like the decadence at the end of the century. And then you just, it's all chaos. And so you see like... <laughs> or, or freedom. Chaos or freedom, exactly. <laughs> and so you see the beginning of the end in the Romantics. Hmm. And I am very interested in that. Um, what about the Gothic? Do you see that? Mm. And how do you see that? Because for me, you know, the older I get, the more that gothic quality really seems uh, insightful and and about something else, not just, you know, let's make scary stuff, but also about, you know, nation and and the the body being, you know, disintegrating, uh, both the body of... Uh, the person and the self, but also yeah. of the nation and the empire in some weird way. Well, it's interesting because, you know, to dip back to the 15th, uh, 16th, uh, early 17th century, when, you know, death is kind of just all the time. Mm. And so it's not, in, 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 in a lot of those poems, it's lamented. Like the, I think that the saddest poem um, in the language about a child dying is that Ben Johnson poem um, about his son. It's it's heartbreaking. Um, yeah. But death in those poems, it's also kind of matter of fact in a lot of ways. Whereas mm. you get to uh, the 19th century, you get to the Romantics, and it's almost as if people have begun to find death intolerable. There's a whole culture of um, finding death intolerable and we got to figure out and technological advances will help. We got to figure out how to, how to change this. And so that Keats, Keats never stops talking about death. And, um, I think that wasn't he dying. He was dying, but I think that he also (laughs) just part of, part of it. But I think that he just, that was also part of his sensibility. I think that Gothic is a kind of expression of this or an outgrowth of this idea that the death, that death has become intolerable. It can't, be part of our everyday lives in the way it was like two or 300 years ago. Uh, we just can't stand it anymore. Um, and I think that that is, yeah, also to do um, with death of the nation. Although uh, I think that particularly for English poets, there's, there's a, there's a kind of paradox there, I suppose, because you've also got the growth of empire. But I think that people are wrecked. Some of them, consciously or unconsciously recognize that the way in which the empire is growing is going to be the way it's going to be the thing that kills it. Mm. Um, Mm. And so death is kind of everywhere, um, but in a different way, um, in a way that you can kind of 
be kind of artistic about, I suppose. Yeah. And I think that that in 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 the Gothics and the Romantics, I think that that's I think that's where you get that kind of sensibility from. Um, what about Poe for you? Don't like him at all. Don't like, like Poe? No. Jeez. I know. I I, I find. I think that he, ultimately, his mind was a little limited. Um, I don't mean he was stupid. He's very smart. What I mean is, like, his ideas about race and stuff are very kind of, um, he can't get outside of a narrow kind of thinking. And I I find that the way that plays itself out is um, it's not just uh, that he says things that one might find offensive, but you can see the narrowness in the work itself. Um, and so it ends up being a little, just a little bit immature and it never gets out of that. I'm very, he's very impressive. Like, look at all these amazing things he can do. <laughs> but I, I've never, I've never fallen in love. That's the most damning <laughs> yes. compliment I've ever heard. Wow, that work is very impressive. You know, that's like, <laughs> how dare you, sir? Yes. Uh, <laughs> he might have said that if he could, he could have managed the strength. Well, uh, it, you actually also anticipated uh, what is one of my last questions, which is about race and the epic. Because I think it's sort of circulating around both our questions, but also these questions of romanticism. It's certainly circulating through Blake and Berryman. But I'm curious about how race plays into our sense of epic. Hmm. Well, that's a really good question. Um, because I don't know that I've ever really thought about this. That's uh, all I think about. <laughs> well, I need to think about it. How does I tend to think about... I thought a lot about race in the confessional mm. because I have Let's talk about that. I have felt although I can say things about race in epic maybe because I've felt that um confessional poetry is essentially white poetry. Um and the reason for that I have felt is at least in a western context and American context you know if we're thinking I, I think about, I tend to think about it kind of religiously the only people who are considered to operate at a state of grace from which to fall according to which to have a need to confess are white people nobody else occupies a state of grace um, people of color don't and so if we're looking at it from a religious perspective confessionalism is cut off at the beginning for non-white poets and so I, I think about this I think about this an awful lot because I, I do write autobiographical poems and I've written at least some poems that I would think of as being confessional but I also feel myself cut off from it. Um, with regard to race and epic, I find it very interesting. I'm very interested in it, um, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it. Um, <laughs> because there's a way in which the stage for the non-white epic, I guess I would say, um, in the non-white Western epic, doesn't really exist until you get those kind of fragmented postmodern poems until you get cantos and stuff because you've got, certainly in America, if we're talking about like the black epic, you've got um, a kind of fragmented people. You've got, you know, this consciousness that one is not, ultimately not in one's like historical first home and that an epic being sort of an expression of nation, I think that it's very difficult to imagine what uh, what black epic is until you get to mid part of the 20th century and hmm. you can have that kind of fragmenting and you can draw from all kinds of different places and so that it doesn't necessarily have to be like an expression of semi-jingoistic unitary uh, national uh, identity it can hmm. be a kind of world identity it is ironic that 
you kind of have to think that the progenitor of this sort of world identity epic is going to be Ezra Pound, um, just because of what he tries and fails to do with the Cantos, despite his uh, fascism and the many other problems with Pound. He creates a kind of form in which um, people of color in the West can do their own epic. Um, It does seem like a kind of Poundian inheritance in a way, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, uh, we could do a whole nother podcast thinking about Pound's influence, good and bad. But I want to back up a little Mm -hmm. because you said something that I thought was really interesting about uh, confession and about states of grace. And it kind of ties epic and confession together because for me, the Negro spirituals were really the place where nation was built Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. where grace was assumed. Mm -hmm. Um, Sure. it It doesn't mean that... Uh, it was unitary, but it was also profound, mm-hmm. uh, a liberatory theology, a kind of revolutionary notion mm-hmm. smuggled in through the front gate, as it were. Right, um, right. And there's something really powerful about that smuggling that, for me, uh, Black Epic is taking part in. It's trying to to sing its way into some kind of, let's call it freedom. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I'm curious about that because I think your work so much uh, does that, so much thinks about, uh, as you said, race in the confessional, but also about race and redemption in Mm -hmm. in some larger way. I think you're really wrestling with that and that idea of the language of my captors, that's what the spirituals are. It's like, okay, I'm going to translate very quickly and very radically these notions of exile, uh, home, acceptance and a better afterlife, which of course brings us back to Jim Limber Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I think is really powerful. Well, I mean, there's a way in which I think um, the black epic is um, a kind of community epic, I guess I would say, in that any individual epic produced by a black person is just a piece of that. It's a fragment of this sort of continuous epic because there are a lot of ways in which the sort of black community, black identity in America does begin with song, does begin with um, um, a way uh, of separating one's community via art, um, via lyricism, really. Um, And uh, that gives one um, also a sort of non-narrative foundation from which to make one's contribution um, to black epic. I mean, there's a way in which I guess it's a sort of postmodern before, well before postmodernism exists because it is a kind of identity from fragments um, as opposed to, and I suppose it's a sort of opposite postmodernism because it's also not showing fragments against ruins. It is expanding upon um, fragments into identity. It's expanding upon disparate things into identity, into into community. Um, And so I guess, you know, one of the differences, I would say, I suppose, between um, black epic and maybe white epic in the 20th century is that a lot of uh, white epic is sort of responding to what it considers to be a kind of disintegration. And it's a sort of expression of disintegration, whereas black epic, I think, um, is a kind of expression of um, unification or heading toward um, things yeah. coming together as opposed to things coming apart. Um, but it recognizes that it is coming together from a place of apartness. Um, I, I like that a lot. <laughs> well, I definitely think that 
you know, your work is helping us think about these questions of epic and freedom and uh, what's after all of those things. Uh, Thank you so much, Shane, for talking with us and for being our featured poet. Thank you so much for having me. You can read and listen to Jim Limber in Heaven on NewYorker.com. Shane McRae's latest poetry collection is The Gilded Auction Block. Sometimes I Never Suffered will be published in 2020. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Ropadope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses with help from Hannah Eisenman. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 